Hi, it's Sophie Pascoe here and you're listening to my podcast, Outside the Lanes. A podcast proudly brought to you by Westpac New Zealand and produced by Raw Collective. To take on any challenge successfully, first you need to take care of yourself. As a Westpac ambassador, I've been exploring specific areas of growth to inspire you and I to achieve whatever we set our sights on. This is a podcast series that focuses on key themes that are very personal to me, such as leadership, values, balance, health, and more. I have carefully selected mentors who are successful in their field to have beautiful conversations with. In each and every episode, I will be asking a new interviewee about their learnings, their challenges, their wins, their journey, ultimately getting under the skin of what it takes to be in their lane. Sport plays a powerful role in bringing communities together. In today's episode, I'm talking with Raylene Castle, newly appointed CEO of Sport New Zealand on leadership, including the importance of personable leadership, learning from past experiences, how personal challenges help shape your resilience and her goals for sport in New Zealand. Raylene Castle is one of Australasia's leading sports administrators, having most recently held the positions of CEO at Rugby Australia and the Canterbury Bankstown Bulldogs. Prior to this, she was CEO of Netball New Zealand for six years. Outside of her extensive leadership experience, she has held several governance roles in sport. Raylene moved into sports administration after a 15-year commercial career, working in management roles for some of New Zealand's leading companies. She was made an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2015 for services to business and sport. On a personal level, Raylene believes that more representation of diversity is required within leadership across sport in New Zealand to tackle issues of acceptance and inclusiveness that are also reflected within society as a whole. As a female leader in a male-dominated industry, Raylene encourages females to take the plunge and jump on opportunities they otherwise wouldn't, and celebrates women's fashion as a chance to make a statement and stand out in a crowd. Most importantly, Raylene believes that leading with good manners, showing empathy and being able to read a room are all soft skills that make an effective leader. Whether chatting with parents on the sideline of a kid's football match to presenting in Parliament, Raylene stresses the need for relating through authenticity and treating everyone with the same respect. Just to note that this episode was recorded in December 2020, just before Raylene started her new role with Sport New Zealand. Without further ado, join me in this uplifting conversation with Raylene. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, Raylene. Thank you, Sophie. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. Welcome back to New Zealand. Uh, How's it going, being back? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's like putting on a really comfortable pair of slippers. (laughs) And there's lots of new good things that have happened since I've been away, which makes me even more proud to be a New Zealander. The biculturalism that we are so proudly engaging with and growing for all of New Zealand is important. Um, Some of our diversity and inclusion is world leading. Mm. Uh, It makes me really proud to be back here. I completely agree. I'm obviously in a personal aspect, being a para-athlete in New Zealand, you know, we're equal alongside our able-bodied peers here, which compared to a lot of other countries, they don't have that. So absolutely the same proud Kiwi alongside you. You commence your role in Sport New Zealand as CEO on the 15th of December. Looking forward to that. Um, You've had a couple of years in particular, but rough behind the scenes with the media. Do you find that media can give a wrong impression or perception of somebody? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And I was actually, did a speaking engagement last 
uh, Friday for a group of policemen. And one of them at the end of the presentation, he put his hand up and said, how do you feel about the media stuff? Because I'd read a lot of it and I weren't actually sure that you were that good. And then now I've just listened to you for an hour present and I can see that, you know, you obviously do know what you're doing. And so people do have that impression. I think that's the thing that is challenging about modern day media is that the clickbait nature of it mm. is that headlines drive powerful headlines that when you actually read the story, they don't necessarily match. And when people have got agendas and they choose to use the media to drive those agendas, that can be really difficult to manage. So, yeah, I've certainly learnt an enormous amount about that process. I think it's hard for your family because they're seeing it. Mm. Um, best thing is they talk to you every day. The people inside the organisation or inside the sport that you're working with, they know what you're doing and what your drive and focus is and what you're trying to get to. But the Joe average in the street don't, and that can be hard when you see people look twice at you and you really do wonder what's going through their minds. <laughs> but it comes with the territory, and it's sports. That's a good part of sport. People have got opinions about it. They love it. They uh, feel passionate about it because of they share those views. You know, they don't do that to the CEO of Spark or the CEO of Kiwi Rail, mm. um, but they do do it when you're the CEO of a sporting organisation. And I think that comes with the role of when you are in such a high-powered role and you are constantly in the media, people feel like they have an attachment to you in some way, right? You have had an amazing career so far, being CEO of Australia Rugby and the first woman to be CEO in the code. How did that make you feel? Probably going to be a very strange answer. I never thought about it, mm. and I don't. And for all of my desire to want to uh, grow my career opportunities and to take new and challenging roles, I've never done it on the basis that if I did that job, I'd be the first female. It's because of my personal goals about what I want to achieve and then the overlay of other people making it about you're the first woman has been quite challenging for me because I, I don't wear that sort of as a big badge. And the but, though, there is a but, is that I know that it is inspirational for a lot of young women or a lot of women, a lot of young women, and someone's got to be first. So, you know, you would hope that having been first, there'd be other people that would follow you. And, you know, I was the first CEO in the NRL in the modern professional era and there hasn't been another CEO, female CEO since then, which is disappointing because I think, you know, you would hope that that would have created the opportunity to step up. Literally hundreds of women in the street stop me and say, I believe now, I believe that I can do it. But at the same time, I can't get out of bed every morning with the weight of all of those women's aspirations and thinking on mm. my shoulders. Otherwise, I wouldn't get out of bed, you know, because it would be too much. So it's an amazing, brilliant outcome of me concentrating on doing what I do and trying to do the best that I can in the role that I'm in. Totally. Just touching on that, what would be the advice you would give, whether it be a female or not, hmm. to grow their career and, and seeing themselves as a CEO? Yeah. You've always got to have dreams and aspire to do things. Whatever it is that you aspire to do, you've got to be able to look at that and say, that's what I aspire to do. In the female space, I see a lot of women. This is a really great quote by Richard Branson that says, um, when you get given an opportunity, take it and then work out how you're going to do it later. And I see men as the masters of that. 
a job will be advertised as 20 competencies, the men will look at the list and say, I can do 10 of these. And they're like, I'm going to apply for that job. And I watch the woman look at that list and see there's 10 things on that list they can't do. So they think I'm not going to apply for that job. Mm. And you can't get a job you don't apply for. So my message when I talk to, you know, leadership talks and things to groups is is to those women is put your name in the hat. Mm. Like you've got to apply. You've got to be brave enough to say, yes, I'm going to do it. I'm either going to learn those things I can't do or someone in the role will help me or my boss will give me the support that I need. Be brave enough to say, yeah, I am going to bluff my way through those things. In the opportunities I've ended up with, I couldn't do everything that they put on the on the list of skills and competencies. I could probably do quite a lot of them, but having the confidence to back yourself in and be mm. brave enough is something that I would really encourage all females to throw their head in the ring and say, right, I'm going to have a real crack at this. So you would see yourself as a very self-confident leader? Yeah, I do. And I'm not 100% sure really where that self-confidence comes from. There has been a couple of friends of mine that might call it stupidity. (laughs) Um, You know, why did you take that job at Rugby Australia? And, you know, I wouldn't change it, Sophie. I look back and I wouldn't change the two and a half years. It was really difficult. There was some moments that were career-defining for me. But those battle scars is what experience is. It's what helps you go into the next opportunity and know when you face a similar situation or something different that you'll understand how to deal with it, how to cut it off the past more quickly, how to empathise better, how to take people with you, all of those things. So I wouldn't change it. Sure, I'd make some decisions differently if I had my time again, but hindsight's a fantastic thing and you don't have that. So you've got to do the best that you can at the moment and work really hard to try and work with the people that you've got inside your immediate environment to make them feel confident, them feel part of the team, them feel like they can go forward and do what they need to do. And that's the most important thing. I can't actually control what they write in the newspaper. I can't control that bit, but I can work with the people around me to make sure they're in an environment where they think they can do great things for the organisation they're working for. Yeah, and absolutely learn something off their leader every single day. Mm. Sport New Zealand's purpose is to contribute the well-being of everyone in Aotearoa. What will you contribute to Sport New Zealand? Well, I, I do have some experience now, and I think that's where the board have said we like that experience. And so for me, it's about bringing though, that experience, but it's about uniting. I'm a great believer in trying to bring the sector together to have it working as effectively as it can. You know, Sport New Zealand has an interesting role in that it needs to be a policy maker and a leader, but it also needs to be the connector and the listener. It's the investor, so it needs to invest for outcomes for the government, but recognising it's a sport, and we don't talk about in sport investment and schedules and all of that stuff. So how do we normalise that so that the athletes having great experiences, the play, active recreation and sports sector are feeling like they're part of a sector that's actually helping for New Zealanders, everybody active. I mean, that's the vision, everybody active, and that's such an aspirational goal. We all know that we'd be healthier if we have great healthy lifestyles and you know we can lead the world we do lead the world in a lot of areas it has in sport it can in sport and it will continue to do in sport mm. you have a rich sporting career whether that be leading a lot of sporting organizations but also you've represented a netball tennis and lawn bowls and obviously that stems right down from your family members as well Bruce being a former New Zealand rugby league captain 
And your mother, Marlene, she's a Commonwealth Games gold medalist in lawn bowls. And my brother does triathlons and iron men and stuff, so, you know. So it really runs in the family. Were you always going to see yourself in sport in some sort of way, whether that be leading the sport organisations or being active yourself? It feels like home. So I was in 15 years in the corporate sector in some of New Zealand, like telecom, and which it was then now Spark. Bank of New Zealand, Southern Cross Healthcare, Fuji Xerox, so those types of organisations, which taught me the enormous, deep disciplines of corporate life and how to, you know, write a great business case, how to manage a P&L, how to deal with presenting to big groups, how to sell things, those basic skills of running a business because the reality of business of sport is big. Rugby Australia was anywhere between 120 and $140 million business with about 140 staff. So, you know, they're reasonable sized businesses. So you need to have those business experiences. But I had this deep hankering to want to work in sport and it was just about finding the right opportunity and I was fortunate to get appointed as CEO of Netball New Zealand. And it does, it feels like I've come home. I feel like I bring the best of my skill set into those environments. So I just feel really fortunate every day and I love what sport brings and what healthy New Zealanders can bring in community engagement and what sport can do at community levels where, you know, yes, it's great to fill a stadium with a whole lot of people and have all blacks and win test matches or silver ferns or white ferns or, but when you see, you know, those five-year-old kids on a freezing morning with their proudest punch of their cool uniforms and, you know, their skirts are too long and their bibs are too big and oranges at half time, that's what really lights my day. That's amazing. That's really cool. I myself get such a kick out of seeing the young athletes even coming up to me and swimming beside me in the pool and the fact that they get such encouragement, really, that they're getting to swim with some of the best in in the world. Yeah, it's nice to see that. It's really amazing that with New Zealand, there's this hard work ethic that we have and passion for sport. Have you seen a difference between New Zealand sport and Australian sport? I don't think at a community level it's different. I think if you, it doesn't matter where you go in the world when you play sport, that can bring communities together and young people having great experiences, forming friendships for life. That's really special. So I don't think that's very different. I think it's interesting, culturally different between New Zealand and Australia is that, you know, I have an analogy, it's easier to find a needle in a haystack and a smaller haystack. So I think we find our promising athletes in New Zealand more easily because country's a bit smaller and they tend to come to the surface. In saying that, if we lose one of those good athletes, they're a bit harder to replace. Mm. So we tend to have a culture of nurture. So we put our arms around our high-performance athletes and look after them because they might not be a factory just churning out the next one and the next one and the next one. So that's really special. It's a special part of, of New Zealand. You do have to be careful that in putting that arm around that it doesn't get too comfortable because I think that's a challenge for how you balance that complacency of being part of the group and knowing there might not be someone coming behind you with having to train as hard as you can to be the best person. And, you know, you know that better than anyone. And it is that drive to want to continue to be the best that you can be, but recognising that we don't have a massive factory of athletes here. So there's a really great balance. And I think the now nature of our history also brings something special to that culture as well. Mm. 
As a CEO of Sport New Zealand, do you see yourself channeling your leadership right down to obviously not just community level, but that elite level as well? Um, on a personal level myself, you know, I did have a relationship with Peter Miskimin and obviously with CEO of High Performance Sport New Zealand, Paralympics New Zealand. And it's a really nice way to obviously have a relationship with the people who are running us. Do you see yourself being in that role as well? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I mean, I work close with Michael Scott, who's the CEO of High Performance Sport New Zealand, and and that's ultimately, you know, his responsibility sits there. I sit as an ex officio board member on on High Performance Sport, so I will naturally have some established relationships with some athletes. I look forward to meeting the new up and coming ones that I haven't met for a long time because I've been away for seven and a half years. So I'm looking forward to that. And you know, you do whatever you can. It doesn't matter in these roles. You you work really hard, whether it's standing on the sideline and Otara with, you know, your gumboots on talking to families and watch their kids run around and enjoy and love that experience just as much as you're fortunate to watch, you know, Olympic swimming or test matches or whatever it is. So it's a wide spectrum and um, there's not one that I piece of it I love more than the other. You're a very good speaker. You obviously deal with the confrontation that's part of being a leader. Did you learn this on the way, how to speak and talk to others and how you present yourself or did it come naturally? All of those things, of course. My dad would say that I could sell ice to Eskimos when I was like five years old. <laughs> I was kind <laughs> of like, so probably in confidence, was fortunate to have a number of leadership roles right from when I was at, you know, sort of school and captain sports teams and be house captains and prefects and those types of things. So always felt comfortable. Public speaking takes time. That's not an easy thing to do. The one thing I would say is if you ask me to stand up and talk about sport, I could talk to you all day. If you ask me to stand up and give a four-minute talk on cats, something I didn't know anything about, I'd be terrified. Mm. I'd be really anxious and scared because I actually really wouldn't know what I was talking about. But the reality is it wouldn't matter what you asked me about sport, I'd have some kind of understanding of it. And then if I didn't know, I could confidently say, I don't actually know the answer to that, but I do know the people that will, and I'm going to go away and find out from those people the answer to that, and I'll come back to you. And I think that's the other thing about being confident enough to say, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm with Susan, she knows, or I'm with Harry, he knows. or So that leadership capability to bring the subject matter experts who are way smarter than you way more specialist, way more capable or competent in their field of expertise and being able to bring them to the table and be a leader that is brave enough or confident enough to employ people that are smarter than you and better than you is also one of those things that is important when you're dealing in that team environment. You've mentioned in previous interviews everyone deserves to make a mistake and everyone needs a first chance to not then make the same mistake again. Have you been given that yourself before? Is that why you live off that motto? Oh, definitely in our house, that was how I was brought up. You know, you could do that the first time probably and you'd get a nice calm explanation. Wouldn't we go so good if you did it the second time? But yeah, I think that's how you learn. You learn by making mistakes. You know, you, you want to make sure that you don't make the really big ones because, you know, that can be disastrous. You know, don't drink and drive all those. So don't jump out of a plane without a parachute, those types of things. But... You know, in the learning and certainly in a, in a corporate environment or business environment, that's where you 
experience comes from. So you you learn, and you know if it's an enormously costly mistake, that's hard, and sometimes that comes with consequences. But I would be very calm and considered. And my if someone came to me and said, "Oh, listen, I've really stuffed up. I've done this the first time." If they came the second time, then yeah, there would have to be different consequences, or you know, sort of more stern conversations. So yeah, I think that is an important part of learning. That's that is how we learn and we all grow, and we none of us are perfect. That's for sure. Mm. What sort of CEO and leader do you see yourself? I mean, do you have an open door policy for the people that work around you? Yeah, I do. And it's really important to me. Really, really important. And it is hard because I don't think I'm scary, but my EA will say to me, no, people think you're scary. I'm like, I'm not scary. I'm really not. Please come and talk to me. So I do, and I wander the floors, and I'll go and sit on the edge of someone's desk and have a chat and say, you know, how's, how's your daughter? She wasn't well, or how's... Because that, for me, is that important. The person that is on reception is just as important as the coach of your national team who's as important as the person on the customer service desk answering the phone. So the organisation works because of all of those people, and I like to think that I can be approachable and have a relationship with all of those people. Sometimes it's hard because that's I could spend literally in the last three roles and including Sport New Zealand role, I could spend 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week never at my desk, never reading an email, never looking at actually any work because there's so much great stakeholder engagement that you could do. The reality is you can't do that because you need to actually do some emails and, you know, read some reports and all of that sort of stuff. So it is that balance is important, but being visible, being out and about, being approachable. And, you know, one of the other quotes I've got is um, that I really love trying to live my life by is um, an Albert Einstein one, which is uh, I speak to everyone the same whether he is the garbage man or the president of the university. And I think that's the capability and skill set to make a group of parents, you know, on the sideline of a young person's sports event feel comfortable or be able to present, like I'm going to be going into Parliament next week and talking to Grant Robertson, you know, being able to work across the spectrum and relate and be authentic with all of those different groups. And I was talking yesterday to an event and, you know, like you don't turn up to the side of a footy field or a netball court or a swimming pool in your high heels and you're soaked because you'll look like a dick right like that's not very <laughs> authentic but as a 50 year old woman that's also quite a hard balance because turning up in your track so it's probably not that cool either so that's a balance but then you've got to be able to suit up or, or put your ball gown on to go to those events and being able to work across the spectrum I think is really important. Mm. Speaking of fashion, you are a bit of a fashionista. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> yes. Um, I know I very much admire every time you appear on TV or out and about in the communities in New Zealand, well, now, you do have an amazing appearance. Uh, however, you have been diagnosed with alopecia. Why is it so important for you to express that to everybody else that you have that? Hmm. It's a story I've told a few times. So alopecia areata is an autoimmune disease. It doesn't have anything to do with stress. That's where my body eats its hair follicles. That's really glamorous. So I went through the first phase where I didn't tell anyone and I wore a headscarf and I managed to sort of conceal enough with a headscarf. But everyone thought I had cancer. So the second time it happened was when I was in Australia and I went public and talked about it for three reasons. One was I didn't want people to think I had cancer. Secondly, I didn't want that sort of corridor conversation, which is it's too tough for her, this job, her hair's falling out with stress. 
And the third was that there's a lot of young women that are the challenges of having alopecia and how confronting it is. You know, at the moment I have, you know, this is a wig. Um, I have no hair at all. I've got no eyebrows, no eyelashes. And when you turn up, and I was actually speaking in a function yesterday with my brother, who also has alopecia, and he has no hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes. But he rocks it, right, because he's a bloke, and he can walk into the room Michael Klim-like and really own it. If I did that, imagine if I walked into that yesterday and presented like that with no hair, no eyebrows, no eyelashes. It would be really confronting for people. So how women look, they're judged, absolutely. If you look, if I do a TV appearance or whatever, 50% of the social media feedback will be what I look like, how heavy I was, what weight I was, what my makeup looked like. And when I went through the alopecia piece, you know, I had lots of sledging on social media, like, you know, when I had a headscarf, could you not get out of bed? Were you too lazy to get out of bed this morning and do your hair properly? Like, really, very rarely do I call people out on social media because I just can't get into the fight. But this particular morning I did, and this guy said, no, actually, I've got alopecia areata. I was like, stuff you. For a woman, it's more challenging, but there's a but, and I reckon the buts are positive, and that is we look different. So we can walk into a room with a group of men in boring grey suits, and we can stand out. Mm. And I think that's important. And I think the empathy piece that women have is now also hugely advantageous. And if you saw Jacinda in the Christchurch shooting when she hugged that woman, she had a hijab on and she hugged that woman. That is something that is unique to a female leader that Mm. a male leader just couldn't have done. It would have been odd. So you can take all the negatives and you can be negative or you can say, right, I've got some real opportunities here. So I think being a woman, expressing yourself through fashion, being able to walk into a room, make a statement, hug the person that really needs it. All of those things are what diversity is all about, why it's important that we have men and women in in environments. But as a leader, it can be a real point of difference. Mm. And you always get to have immaculate hair. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I do. That's right. I leave it on the nightstand at night time and then I put it on in the morning. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's it's great. It's like me getting to change whatever leg I would like to wear for the next day. So I have them all lined up. (laughs) It's a similar situation because... You know, I look back when I was younger in particular, I was very self-conscious of my disability. And I'm in the sport where it showcases my disability the most out of all of them and uh, had no issue around being in a poolside because I was good at it. People saw me as Sophie Pascoe, the swimmer. But really, Sophie behind closed doors was actually quite a self-conscious young woman who was then starting to obviously look at boys and that's where it started to really kick in. And it was really challenging until the point where I started to feel more confident in myself that actually I could express and show my leg in a way where I was confident. And, you know, I can say today that there's still definitely days that, you know, I look in a full-length mirror and... You know, I scare myself in a way because I kind of go, oh, I look different to everybody else around our society. Would you see yourself the same? And Yeah. My biggest thing is I just, I don't want people to feel sorry for me. Mm. So that's my thing is don't go, mm, poor Eileen. 
it is what it is. I live with it. Yeah, some days it's hard. The really good thing in quarantine was because my hairstyle is quite recognisable, in quarantine I didn't wear my wig at all. So no one, I was in quarantine for two weeks, no one knew who I was. I didn't have a wig on. I either wore like, obviously, no hair. I didn't wear no hair. I had no hair and a hat when I was exercising. It was great. No one had a clue who I was. So it was fantastic. Mm. I don't wear my wig with my close friends and family, but I, I'm still not at a stage where I would walk into a meeting, a board meeting in Sport New Zealand without my wig on, you know, I'm not there. So, yeah, it is. But I think that's the power of people like you who have got out in front of the conversation and actually for the next generation, there's someone to be aspirational and see normalise challenging situations in life. That's why I talked about alopecia. I think that's important. Um, You know, Ali Cole, who I got to know in Australia, and she's like rocking her bionic leg now. She's just owning it shorts, bionic leg out there, runners, like just, and you know, when the little kid goes, mummy, why is, you know, for you to be able to be part of that and explain that, that's so powerful. It mm. is so powerful. And that's why diversity and inclusion is societally so important. You know, like there's that overnight the actress came out, the Ellen Page that's gone to Elliot Page and, and transgender. It's when those people talk about that and actually go public and share their story. And she was so vulnerable in her social media post. And you could, you know, you know for trans people, it's just enormous. And like after the Israel Flower Show, which was incredibly difficult, I would have had, I reckon, 400, four or 500 gay people in, in same-sex relationships say to me, thank you, because mm. you stood up for us. And it wasn't why I did it. It wasn't the reason at all. I wasn't thinking, oh, gee, I need to. It was because when you've got a set of values that talk about inclusion, you need to stand up for those, and that means having everyone welcome in the environment and everyone feeling safe in the environment. So, Absolutely, yeah. and you're showcasing that leadership comes in all different shapes and sizes, and you know whether you have alopecia or not, it's also giving people that either have that diagnosis or in the likes of me showing other children who have amputees themselves that they can succeed in this world and be leaders. So, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Mm. It's really powerful. Mm. Actually, and just talking about Elliot, I use the wrong pronouns, so it should be he and they, not she. And I think that's something that is really hard and we will make mistakes and we won't always get it right. And I've got another friend actually um, in the US who's a former swimmer. She went to the Olympic Games and she is them, they. So that's hard, hard like, and she'd laugh at me like I'd be trying to get it out, them, they, and she'd be going, no, it's all right, we'll get there. And it's the people who are in that situation that are brave enough to say, actually, running, you didn't get that one right. Mm. And standing up and, and saying. And standing up and saying, you know, and for me to say, oh, sorry, I didn't get that one right, right, okay, I'll try it. Make sure that we, that's part of the bravery to stand up and correct people as well and call them out in a really genuine, supportive way that's a learned experience so that we can all go forward. What's your favourite part of being a leader? Hoping that you can make the people you work with a bit better. And I learned it from the very first manager I ever had. Paul Warner was his name. I worked for Fuji Xerox. Uh, he was in marketing, but... Every time I went to him with something, I came away a little bit better because of the conversation. So my idea was developed. He'd help me talk to the right person. He'd tell me to go and you know think about this part of it. So it was a very constructive try and move it forward piece. And I think when you lead and you work with people and a team of people, that's what you want is the team 
the organisation, the sector, all to be that bit better because of the way you go about leading. So sometimes it can be really small things. Sometimes it can be forming a great friendship with someone. In a career development sense, it can be backing someone into a situation where they didn't believe they had the capability to do that job and you say, no, no, I can see it in you and backing them into growing into that opportunity. It can be picking the right team so that in your leadership team you've got the right combination of skills so that they can perform at their best. So, yeah, it's having some goals and achieving them, and that's for the organisation or the vision or whatever it is you're trying to deliver to as, a, as an organisation. But at a personal level, it's I hope that the people around me and in the organisation all feel like they're better and more experienced and have had better experiences because they've worked inside the organisation. There's many people that would look up to you and be inspired by you. Uh, Is there anyone that inspires you? Yeah, there is every day and it comes in different situations and it doesn't always have to be famous people. Like sometimes you do, like I have enormous um, aspiration for Oprah. I think what she's done in her environment, you know, how could you not? Like she's awesome. Growing up, it was Steffi Graf. I just thought where she came from, who she was, how she presented herself, she was amazing. And then you can be somewhere where you see an amazing volunteer that just gives. I've just been through a review process working with Touch New Zealand. I was lucky to be on a number of conference calls with uh, volunteers that are working throughout the community delivering Touch. They're volunteering 30 hours a week, don't get paid a cent, delivering great experiences for young people, loving every minute of it that's just as inspiring because they're actually giving their time. And so I think you find it in lots of places. I sort of collect quotes and forever taking photos of stuff and trying to bring that together in a story that actually builds out the different learnings that I've had throughout my career because I think you find them in all sorts of different places. The role that you're in requires a lot of structure and organisation. Does that follow through into your personal life as well? (laughs) (laughs) it depends what you're talking about Um, my friends laugh uh, when we go out for dinner I like to control the ordering of the menu and so Greg always laughs Greg's my partner when we go out for dinner with people for the first time and the you know the guy will pick up the menu and he's like no no don't pick up the menu really don't have this sorted so around some things I am and around other things I'm not I can be really just go with the flow and not be have to be too organized So, you know, I think it's both. No one would describe me as a particularly organised person. And in fact, I can't cope with that. I can't cope with lots of structure, routine. I'm not good at that. That makes me feel really uncomfortable and unsettled. So I need to be having lots of energetic people around me, the opportunity to be flexible, come and go. I, you know, often running late, which is not a good trait, but running late because I'm running from one thing to the other. So that sort of almost manic environment I I really enjoy so and probably have a capability to operate with lots of things happening all at once and lots of information coming at me and being able to process that because when you think about being a chief executive and you've got maybe seven reports you've got seven subject matter experts coming at you every day talking to you about their thing and you've got to be able to deal with their thing they're only talking about their little piece of the world finance legal, HR, community sport, high performance, whatever it is. But you've got to be able to have enough knowledge of that information to help them and send them away with the information or the decision or whatever it is they're looking for. So 
being able to sort of have all those balls in the air and manage them and be sensible about the feedback doesn't always work, but most of the time, try and be sensible with the feedback you give to them is probably a strength I've got, which when people say to me, you know, what is your strength? And I think that processing information and being able to work across lots of different streams is, is important, but that means it's a bit crazy. So, you know, I'll put an hour in my diary thinking, oh, I'll do some reading this morning, never happens. I'll do some blue sky thinking, never happens. <laughs> you know, so you've got to find other times to do that stuff. Mm. How do you get to balance, obviously, being CEO of a sporting organisation and, and your personal life at home? I'm not sure I'd ever separate the two. My friends and family are really good at separating the two, so that's the great thing when you spend time with your friends and they don't care what job you do. They've known you since you had a perm and you had really ugly shoulder pads in your clothes and all of that stuff, so that's great. Greg's enormously understanding and supportive, so he will say that he just wants to try and make my home life easier so he doesn't he knows that I'll get phone calls in the middle of dinner and I'll be late for things and you know so he's really understanding which is enormously helpful I need to make more time for my active healthy lifestyle which I know is not as good as it should be and when you're the CEO of Sport New Zealand you should live the live the mantra so yeah that'll be a real aim for me to try and make sure I make time for myself around doing that stuff I'm okay you know but I don't do as much as I'd like to do. Totally. So, I mean, sitting from the other side here as the athlete, you know, I have this perception of a CEO being constantly on call and and basically working 24-7 to be able to run the likes of us athletes. Do you get to switch your phone off? Uh, No, not really. But that's a choice. Like there are some people that would. I just don't and wouldn't because I think I've always worked on the theory that I can answer and solve something in one minute that someone else might need an answer that will hold them up for 24 hours. So if they need to ring me and ask me something, I can say yes or no or do or don't. And that allows the whole process to continue on. And I'm very good at switching off. So I'm not someone that worries about things. So if I'm on holiday and someone has to ring me and ask something, they're like, I don't want to bother you. I say, it's fine. Just ring me. And then once I've done and answered it, then I go back to my pina colada and my (laughs) book and whatever it is. And I'm absolutely fine. I can start and stop things. I don't very often have sleepless nights. I do occasionally, but that ability to be able to switch off and not really sweat the small stuff and worry about things and be able to turn on and off is, is an important part of it. Yes, it's certainly something I've learned over the time. Amazing. What has been a highlight or the most memorable moment in your career so far? Being in Delhi and being CEO of Netball New Zealand and being there in a foreign country where it was really, the games were really challenging for athletes and attendees and have the Silver Ferns win a gold medal in double overtime was enormously special. That was great. Um, being at a... See, so, yeah, the Bulldogs, when we made the NRL Grand Final in 2014, we got beaten by South, so that wasn't so cool. But that whole week leading up to it, the town of Belmore painting houses, blown white, painting cars, blown white, partying in the streets every night, dancing, no alcohol because drums and dancing, just absolutely special experiences that you'll never, ever, I'll never, ever forget. But yeah, I think the ability for sports to bring communities together still continues for me to be something that's enormously powerful and seeing the joy on kids' faces when they engage in those activities, playing on the beach, you know, having fun with their dad, playing beach cricket, learning for the first time, hitting their first boundary, you know, swimming their first full length, you know, whatever it is, you know, that that's still really magical. So I mean, fortunate to be with some very public 
events that have gone well, um, but sometimes it's the private moments, you know, watching from distance is pretty cool as well. Mm. You don't have children yourself, but I'm assuming that really the community kids and seeing them succeed are really the way of feeling like they're your children. Yeah, and it was unfortunate I couldn't have kids, and that's one of those moments in life, right? For you, you just assume that you're going to be able to, and and then Greg and I we couldn't, and um, so you've got two choices, right? You either crawl up on a ball and feel sorry for yourself, or you think I've been put on this earth to do something else. So um, that was the focus. We had a niece and nephew, Riley and Finn, that we're really close to, and they are really important in sharing some of those experiences. And yeah, I think it's. Lots of friends with kids and seeing them engage in whatever activities they choose to engage in. It can be dance, it can be drama, it can be, you know, it doesn't have to be sport, but I'm a bit biased. I think reckon sport's pretty good. Oh, totally. (laughs) No, I I agree. And um, you weren't born here in New Zealand. You were born in Australia. Kiwi parents, though. I must ask this question since you've obviously been CEO of uh, the Bulldogs and Australia Rugby. Are you supporting the All Blacks? Yeah, of course. And I mean, they're such a dynamic story for New Zealand. The success, the who they are, the way they present the haka on the world stage is such amazing ambassadors for our country. So yes, of course. And the but is that when you work in an organisation and you have aspirations with that organisation and you set a strategy in place for success and you appoint those people into their roles, of course you want them to be successful. So, you know, I still continue to want Dave Rennie and um, his coaching team to be successful with the Wallabies. So, yeah, I mean, I'll always want the All Blacks to be successful because that's important, but um, there's a part of me that put a plan in place with Rugby Australia that would like to see that be able to continue to be successful. And I think there's not a rugby fan that doesn't want to see great players look up test matches between those two nations. So, yes. Mm. Uh, and aside from rugby, um, obviously supporting us Kiwis now with being CEO of Sport New Zealand. So we'll see you out supporting in the black and white rather than the gold. <laughs> Better colours anyway. <laughs> well, well, it will be the thing that one of the big benefits I'm to New Zealand is I do wear a lot of black and no one will actually question me and say, oh, you do wear a lot of black or, you know, pass comment on it when I turn up to an event so I can't describe how proud I am when I see New Zealanders offshore being successful there is something incredibly powerful about black about the salt fern about this little nation that punches above its weight and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about in business whether you're talking about in drama acting you know science sport I mean sport tends to capture a lot of the conversation but you know you don't have to go very far to see that we do it right across every industry that's something that's incredibly special and you know sport New Zealand has a real role in making sure that we are giving those young people those opportunities early to be whatever they want to be and whether it's ultimately wearing the silver fern as an athlete or whether it's being a good New Zealander um, with a healthy active lifestyle both of those things are really important. Mm. I think competitiveness is pretty big in our society in New Zealand. Uh, do you see yourself as a competitor? Yeah, I'm really competitive. Yeah, I am. And um, your personal life too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Board games, um, Finska, I don't know if anyone knows what that beach game is, but yeah, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I am. I am really innately competitive. Although I think as I've got older, I choose where I need to be really competitive. 
around some things I know when to let certain things go. So I think that comes with maybe capability <laughs> as, as much as age. But um, to want to be a CEO, there has to be a level of competitive streak because there's a set of goals that you want to get to and you've got to put a plan in place to get to the outcome. So it's just the environment that you're working in. It's It's got a competitiveness to it, which is about delivering to outcomes. So I think it comes innately as in a CEO role. You appoint coaches and other personnel to take charge of the teams, but apart from that, is there much you can really do as an administrator to influence the performance of your team on the field? Not at a literal level, but at a cultural level, I think, yes. I think the culture piece is incredibly important and setting that expectation for the organisation. You're a representative team of an organisation, so if you're hockey, if you're football, if you're filming, if you're table tennis, you're representing table tennis New Zealand and New Zealand. So that cultural piece that comes from the leadership is important and I think that's where sometimes you have a separation in that when the team culture doesn't go well and doesn't end up representing what the organisation represents is a real challenge. I think you know, certainly the Australian cricket team and Sandpaper Gate was a really good live example of that, is where was the expectation of the organisation versus the team and the cultural values of what an environment looks like. Um, and as a CEO, you have to have an understanding of what's happening in those high-performance environments if you're CEO of a sport like that. So I do. It's not about picking the team or it's, it's not about having a, a say in the game plan, but it is about setting the cultural expectations and living yourself by those cultural expectations and ensuring that people in the wider organisation live by those cultural, including the high-performance team. Just because your high-performance doesn't give you a special exit card, you have to be able to live to the cultural values and the expectations and the values of the organisation. Mm. Uh, sport can bring some pretty tricky and tough decision-making at times. From an athlete's point of view, yes, we have a plan A, a plan B, and sometimes we have to be prepared for the unplanned. Um, you yourself have been in that position before. What does it take to be prepared for the unplanned, and how do you plan around situations like that? Well, I think in high-performance sport, it's what-if scenario planning, isn't it? What if this happens? What if the bus is like, what if your best player gets injured? What if, you know, something... You know, that happens. So I don't think it's any different really in the professional environment. So you have to be able to be good at what-if scenario planning. I mean, certainly, you know, in a formal sense, you have risk management plans in place around for the organisation. So that's a form of what-if planning. But I do think that's where experience comes in. So when something starts to come at you, you think, right, okay, I can see where this is going. We need to think about doing these things because I can see this is heading in a place that we didn't expect it to. So... You know, having been through some of those different scenarios over the years, I think it does give you early heads up that you might have to think about what a plan C or D would look like. Mm. You talk a lot about the importance of equality and diversity. How will you achieve your goals in that with Sport New Zealand? One of the proof points is unconscious bias. So the, the ability for people to have a preconceived perception of what a role or a person should look like. So recognising that we, Sport New Zealand represents all New Zealanders. So how do we have a board that represents that? How do we have a management team and a staff that represents those thoughts so that we, and the information that I'm getting and advice that I'm getting, it's coming from all of New Zealand. And I think New Zealand has done a great job of that when I saw Jacinda stand up with her caucus and her party, it looked like New Zealand. 
it was a great melting pot of different cultures and races and that was exciting for me and I Sport New Zealand should definitely be in that place. So the bicultural piece is something that I'm going to have to dive much more deeply into than I have previously. I'm part Maori, but I haven't probably spent as much time there as I'd like. That's an, a slightly scary but exciting journey that I'm going to go on. Uh, that's going to be great. But there's all parts of diversity is not just about culture, as you well know. So it's all those other parts that we need to think about and that we've got that represented in the management team and the, the wider staff at uh, Sport New Zealand. Going right back into your younger days, are there any particular subjects that you took at high school that saw you wanting to take on this pathway? Uh, any advice that you want to give to that younger generation that's aspiring to be you to take over your role maybe one day and fit in your shoes? Is high school, was that really kind of a area that you would say drove you into this position? Not on its own. It's an important part. Isn't it? Basic education, you know, learning in any capacity is always a positive thing. But you know, if you'd asked me when I left school, would I be the CEO of four different organisations, I would have laughed. Mm. I would have thought only really bright people are the CEO. And I was not in a six-subject class. I was in a five-subject class. I'm not sure they have those anymore. But the other softer skills that you learn are hugely important. Having really good manners is something that is lost often and generations the capability to read a room, to be able to lead well, have empathy, know what EQ actually looks like in a situation of leading people, you know, the teamwork skills that you learn from playing sport or it might be if you're doing ballet or in the orchestra, whatever it is, those teamwork skills, all of those things are actually what brings together a leader um, having common sense to be able to make a pragmatic and practical decision or recommendation on something, those are the skills that round out all of the wide-ranging experiences you need to be a CEO, and you don't just get those from school. So part-time work, waitressing, public-facing roles when you've got people be rude to you and you know do all sorts of things in a public-facing part-time job. I'm an absolute believer in you know taking the responsibility to have a part-time job or when you're studying. It's all the experiences that bring you together as an individual. School's absolutely part of it, and I loved school, and I probably played as much more sport than I did school work. Um, but that Same. ultimately, yeah, that's right. But ultimately, for me, that's been a path that's enabled me to get to where I got to. And those learned experiences of playing sport with older people, like when I was really young, I was sort of in teams when I was only thirteen or fourteen, and they were twenty and thirty. And you know, the, how do you deal with older people and all of those? skills, it's a big mix of those things that you bring together I think is, is important and taking the moment to reflect on those learnings and taking them into your next experience. Oh, I totally agree. Sport's definitely given me a lot of ideas and I know that a lot of what I've learned in sport will transfer over into my next life. And I was the same. I went to school and ate my lunch and played sport. But, you know, it's not as if I didn't ask, you know, if I needed help, I asked for it. Mm. And I think it's really important that we can ask for help. You're in a position where everyone, in the perception again of the CEO, the CEO knows everything. You can obviously put your hand up and ask for help and be vulnerable. Is that correct? 
Totally. And um, I'm going into a sector that I've never worked in before. I've never worked for a Crown entity. I haven't worked for the government before. Um, Policy making, um, how to deal, engage with the minister and government is all new to me. And I've never done any of that. And I am going to need enormous amounts of help and advisement and people to sit alongside with me and tell me when I've got it right, wrong or indifferent. So I know that. So I'm not going to walk in on day one and think I've got that nailed because (laughs) I haven't. Um, So I'm looking forward to that. I'm on the one hand slightly apprehensive, on the other hand hugely excited that I can go into a job and have a piece of it that's all going to be new and exciting to learn about. So it doesn't matter how old you are, you always can learn. And Lois Muir, Dame Lois, Dame Lowy, um, to those of us that know her well, she's a truly incredible woman and I was lucky to have her as my president when I first started at Nepal New Zealand and she's one of the most amazing women I've ever met and she's the three words she never ever says and that is we used to. So she never looks in the rear vision mirror. She's always going, what are the young people doing? What are we doing over here? How am I going to learn? What, how am I going to get better? How are we going to move that forward? And I think that's something that for me has been enormously inspirational to learn, to think, because you can get a bit set in your ways and, you know, when you've been around, well, we used to do this and we used to do that and we used to do it this way and, you know, but to be able to always continue to look forward and learn off the people that are younger, better, smarter, new part of your job, that's to be open-minded to that learning is is something that's not always easy to do because it's a bit scary, but mm. um, if you can do that, it can be really powerful. Two questions and one here. What are your three values and what are the three words you'd sum yourself up in? Oh, goodness me. Didn't warn me about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. Let me think. Off the top of my head. Three values. And also there's this whole debate, isn't it? Is it a value? Mm. Brave? I don't think it's a value, but I'm going to make it one. Brave, to try and be brave, to try and be honest and to be a really good friend, whether it's to your family or your friends. So none of those are actually values in what you've asked me. But those would be the things that I would try and get me out of bed every morning, I think. And then the three words to describe me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's always hard, isn't it? What would other people say? I'd like them to say that I'm brave. I'm probably the three I'd repeat back. Like I think those, if if you asked me, what would they use? I hope that they'd use those things. Mm. Because at the end of the day, no one's judged on whether they're a great CEO or whether they won lots of gold medals. They're judged on whether they're a good person. If you can do your best, you can put your head on the pillow every night knowing that you've tried your hardest or that you're certain that you've made a good, honest decision or you've done it for the right reasons for the organisation, then you can put your head on the pillow at night and close your eyes and know that you've tried your best. Well, I think you are inspirational. I think you're a fashionista. Back at you, Sophie, by the way, back at you. (laughs) Thank you. I think you're an absolute fashionista. And I think you're just an absolute girl boss. So um, thank you very much. I'm going to finish on uh, who are you when you're outside of the lane of Railing Castle, top sports executive? I'm just someone that really enjoys sitting, having a glass of wine, eating really good food around the family table with the people that mean a lot to me. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sophie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Outside the Lanes, a podcast proudly brought to you by Westpac New Zealand and produced by Raw Collective. 
I hope you have enjoyed this episode and if you did, I would appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe to Outside the Lanes podcast. It helps other people know that it exists. Thank you again to my wonderful guests. Until next time.